And and right now the the second Kuti is being built. I think last night I saw that the all of the walls are up, the windows are in, the, the rafters were up and um, Eric, who's building it, has been out there this morning. I haven't had a chance to go out to see what he's up to, but he's working away. So that's really coming together fast. And today we're going to talk about feeling. And, you know, I was just mentioning these few things that are happening here. And <clears throat> of course, no matter what is going on in our life, we are all dealing with feeling constantly. And last week we talked about the body as as one of the five khandas in the heap of form, khandas being, um, <clears throat> having the definition, one of the definitions for khandas is heap. So the heap of, um, of form and the, the most important sort of relevant immediate form of course is the body. <clears throat> but in thinking about the body and you know, over the week, last time I kind of gave the, you know, the way the, the Buddha talked about the body in, the, in some of the suttas. But when we think about body and really apply how we relate to our body to you know, taking the suttas, taking the Buddhist teachings into account and then seeing how that, how that plays out in real life. One of the things that came to my mind was when I was visiting um, Ajahn Mahabua's monastery many years ago and Ajahn Panyawado was there and we would spend time with him. Uh, he was amazing teacher and person. And one of the things he said was that human beings are using the body for the wrong things all the time. <laughs> so I think about how we use the body. Um, what are the right things to do with the body and what are the wrong things? And of course there's, you know, basic moral virtue but even beyond that, you know, why are we caught up in the body or any of these khandas is we want to feel something or we want to experience something and we're focused on that and we want more of what's pleasant and less of what's painful and so we, we engage in all kinds of activities. Like Ajahn Panyawada would say, don't go traveling around. You know, you'll risk um, running into an accident or whatever. And, and what you really want to do with the body is practice. Use it to practice, <clears throat> to meditate, to 
um, reflect on Dhamma, to study, to, you know, practice generosity and virtue and, you know, all of those things that are included in, in development of the path. And so he's like, don't, don't engage in things that are, you know, not on that track. Now he was talking to, this was a small group of monks. He didn't really give public talks. He, he, would talk to people who came to see him. So every day he would come out and sit in a certain area at a certain time. And there'd be a small group of monks that would collect around him. So he was a Westerner, right? If you don't know who he is, which I would imagine most of you don't. Um, He was from England and he became a monk, I think. Uh, I can't remember if it was in England, but he eventually found his way to Ajahn Mahabua in Thailand. And that's where he stayed. And I think he lived there something like 40 years. And he was very um, private, humble, unassuming. And he really did stay put. He rarely traveled outside the monastery. It had to be for a really good reason. And he was incredibly wise. Um, when he passed away, Ajahn Mahabua said, um, he is like me, I am like him, which everyone said was Ajahn Mahabua's way of letting people know that Ajahn Panyawato had realized Nibbana was an arahant. And a, a number of monks um, that I know talked about the incredible uh, wisdom and um, attainment of Ajahn Panyawato. And of course, he was a huge inspiration to the Westerners because he was a Western monk and him. And to be able to hear his take on the Dhamma in English was quite wonderful. So he would say things like that, like don't travel around, but he was, it was the monks and then my mother and me, you know, so a couple of lay people there um, at least. And so I, I know that, you know, from the perspective of someone like him, I don't, I don't think he would think that the Dhamma should be any different in many ways for monks or lay people. And I, I agree with that. I mean, regardless of the form that suits us and our karma, we can still practice to the, the, um, what I want to say in a very, very pure way. So, um, In our life, all of us, whether we're lay or monastic, we can consider, you know, what does it mean to really practice in my life? And whether we're lay or monastic, we can think about, you know, what am I doing with my time and what is important? 
and what isn't. And none of what I'm saying is intended to make anyone feel bad about, you know, watching movies or going on vacation, <laughs> you know, just, just to remember that we, it's useful to think about it. Am I doing what I'm doing right now? Um, you know, for a, a good reason. And sometimes the reason can be and is important that I let my mind unwind and relax. I let my, my mind and my body find a kind of um, I want to say it's a, a kind of um, peacefulness, happiness. And sometimes that is taking a break and going somewhere, doing something, you know, that you might say, oh, well, that's pretty worldly, but, but not really. You know, it depends on what it is and how we approach it. So I hope that that comes across in the, in the way that I intended, that this is not these teachings about, you know, really practicing, not wasting our time or not about just push, 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 gut it out. Don't do anything enjoyable. <laughs> that's not how, that's not the way to happiness in my experience. Um, and of course, a lot of this is related to feeling. How does it feel? And am I undertaking some activity because of a wholesome feeling that can be derived from it that actually helps me be calm, happy, at ease, uh, allows the mind to um, have enough um, space to reflect on what I'm experiencing, what, what's important. So this isn't a prescription for exactly how we should do things or how, you know, what we should or shouldn't do, at least when we get beyond the, the wholesome and the unwholesome virtue and um, mental states. It's more of a, It's more fodder for reflection to really consider, am I doing what I'm doing because it is exciting and what does it stimulate in me? Um, or am I doing what I'm doing because there's a, a mental state that is a, is supported through this that's actually beneficial. And so here, you know, when I think about what we do or do not do with the body, what we do that's wholesome and what we do that's unwholesome, or we do what we do with the body that's beneficial to our development, of happiness and peace and wisdom or not, then immediately we come up, up against or into the realm of feeling, like I said. 
it's really feeling that drives so much of what we, what we do. When you think about the eight worldly winds, for example, you know, praise and blame and pleasure and pain and gain and loss and fame and disrepute, I guess. When you think about those, what really underlies so much of it is how it feels. That's what makes us abhor blame. Because at least that's how it seems to me that someone can blame me for something, even something I haven't done. <laughs> but the feeling of being blamed is probably more um, difficult to deal with um, than even the idea or the actual fact you know, of, of whatever it is I've done or not done. Of course, I can, I can easily come up with examples where that may not be the case, but you get what I mean. It's like we are so caught up in feeling, wanting to feel some things and not wanting to feel other things. And so the Buddha, when he talked about feeling as one of the aggregates, he talked about how, you know, we, we cling to it, of course, we cling to, whole, you know, really happy, pleasant feeling. And the feeling arises from what comes through the senses. You know, it's what we see, what we hear, what we taste, touch, smell, or think. And when in the Buddha says, this is, this is what feeling is, it comes from that contact. And then when we're not in contact with anything, that feeling goes away. So we, we keep feeling alive with thinking. So we might hear something someone says and we have a certain feeling but then the feeling will go away. But if we keep thinking about that experience, then the feeling keeps coming back, right? And, and this, is how, um, this is how we keep grudges alive. This is how we, um, you know, keep um, sort of constraining ourselves around you know, feeling um, afraid, you know, by continuing to relive or proliferate perhaps around something that we've seen or heard, tasted, smelled, or touched. So it transfers from the contact of the five senses to further contact in the mind. And that's what keeps us um, wrapped up in the feeling. So how do we become free of this kind of uh, stranglehold of feeling on us? 
And the Buddha says that's through the Noble Eightfold Path. Mindfulness is a huge help because it allows us to recognize that we are feeling something and why we're drawing back from it or why we're reaching out for it, whatever it is that created that feeling. And again, back to the body and how all of this is related. Body holds the impressions of the experiences we've had in the past. We talked about this a little before, of course, this, you know, the body keeps the score um, book. And I haven't read it, but I feel like I have a pretty good idea based on really practicing with trauma, past trauma, and really witnessing, understanding, seeing in, our, in myself how my body reacts to things, even when my mind isn't really uh, focused on or at least consciously aware of what might be happening, or what it might mean. So what the feeling that gets um, produced or relived through the body can be a powerful message to us about what's going on. And we, even in something like dreams, we have feeling arise and the things that might come in through a dream can give us indications about where we're, we're caught, caught up in, you know, life experience and how we're relating to it. So all of this is helpful information as we practice. And what we want to really be careful of is to be kind to ourselves, accepting of what's there, not um, heap more um, negative feeling and, and fear and um, you might say closing down of the heart because we then feel like we shouldn't feel what <laughs> we think we shouldn't feel what we're feeling. So we want to, you know, use mindfulness, use um, our ability to meditate and allow the mind to really face what's ever there, whatever is there that we are in contact with that's causing what we feel. And then we can use feeling, as I've also talked about many times, and our, and our presence with feeling, especially as it comes through the body, to be able to go deeper and understand the underlying connections, the underlying misunderstanding we have around what's me, what's mine. What I feel is lacking what I'm longing for, what I'm afraid of. And of course, the reality is that when we turn towards whatever it is, 
we then have this wonderful opportunity to see it more in context that it really isn't as huge as we think. And we can recognize its impermanence. And that it's not something that's me or mine. Even if it's a long-standing habit or pattern, we can start to see that it's not it it's not who we are. That who we are, our character is something we have a chance to shape, change through practice, through habits that we create, <coughs> that we can develop. So really um, being aware of the kinds of things that are happening in our world and seeing how our feeling arises around it is important and, and useful to understand how we can develop on the path in such a way that we can accept with equanimity the conditions of our world. And then from that place, take action if, if there's some action that we can take. But to, to really, you know, apply all of these things, you know, the, this idea of the five khandhas and the way the Buddha taught about it and what you see in the suttas. By the way, there's a whole section in the Sangyutta Nikaya on the khandhas, many suttas about the khandhas. You can look at let that these things and then the real the real question is how does this apply to life as i'm experiencing it and how i'm managing the those things i have control over or or want to develop my mastery over my speech and my thought and my bodily actions how does that relate to this and how can I live in this world in a way that really is beneficial for me and for everyone else? And I have this working hypothesis that what is beneficial for, for you and for is also beneficial for everyone else. What's truly beneficial for us is also beneficial for everyone else. That's another really valuable point of reflection. It completely upends any idea of competition. When we help other people in a genuine way, we help ourselves when we take good care of ourselves, when we develop our own mind, when we cultivate the Brahma Viharas, when we develop virtue, we are helping everyone. And we can really feel it. So feeling is extremely important, you know, like, how does it feel? How does it feel when I talk in a certain way 
or talk about certain things? How does it feel when I think about certain things? And how, how might it feel if I maybe shift the perspective a little bit? So for example, we can probably, all of us can bring to mind someone who we feel um, negatively towards. We feel negative, negative about them or about what they're doing. Take that on a personal level or the international stage. And it's easy to fall into criticism. And it's not even wrong necessarily. We should have clarity about what, our, what we ourselves or what others are doing that's wholesome and unwholesome. That's wisdom, discernment. But when we fall into hatred, resentment, you know, a kind of criticism that is harsh, ridiculing, then how does it feel? And when we shift that to a place of deeper understanding, sometimes the deeper understanding of how someone can fall into such action, such behavior, such views. Or the deeper understanding that this is the nature of the world of sangsara, <clears throat> greed, hatred, and delusion are present. They're not gonna go away um, anytime soon for sure. And so when we come to that appreciation, then equanimity arises. How does it feel when we speak about, think about these people, circumstances with, us, with a level of equanimity? So the body and feeling both are incredible tools if we see them that way. When we start feeling anxious about something, really helpful to step back and look. Say, what am I really afraid of? What do I fear? What would be the worst that could happen? And maybe we really are afraid of that scenario. And, and there's probably good reason. I mean, we're... Uh, these organisms that we're, we're not, but we think we are, <laughs> this body, um, this personality, this um, being who has a certain kind of position in the world. We think we are all those things. And when that's threatened, we feel worried, concerned, afraid, anxious. So then when we're, when we're aware of the feeling, then we can start to unpack like, okay, who, who do I really think I am? And, and can I notice this, this, isn't, this isn't something stable and, and, and um, 
consistent. We're constantly changing. This process continues to move forward, change, fluctuate. And what we look at as frightening or disturbing, you know, from a different perspective, maybe even not so so much different in time, we can see it in a different way. It can actually be something beneficial. It's very hard to know. I mean, most of you know that Chinese farmer story where I think it was China. <laughs> it was a probably Zen-like or Chan-like kind of story from Asia where you know, this farmer is finally able to afford to buy a horse. Buys a horse, all the neighbors are really happy for him. This is so great, you've got a horse. But the farmer's also very wise and he's like, yeah, we'll see. Or it's too soon to tell. How many of you have heard this story? It's like everybody, not everybody, okay. Huh, okay, well, you might recognize it as it goes forward or not, but it's such a, it's such a great story. And if we apply it to our own experience, we can really help ourselves with it, I think. Anyway, he's got the horse. And then a, a wild horse comes along and the, his horse breaks away and goes off with the wild horse. And the neighbors are like, oh, this is so horrible. We're so sorry for you. This is a terrible thing. And the farmer goes, eh, too soon to tell. So, you know, a few days later, his horse comes back and the wild horse comes with him. Now he's got two horses. The neighbors are, as you can imagine, oh, wow, this is so wonderful. Now you've doubled your, um, your assets. <laughs> the farmer, of course, eh, too soon to tell. And then the farmer's son, young man, he's training, tries to train the wild horses, trying to break the horse and, and, uh, and the horse throws him and he breaks his leg. Once again, the neighbors are giving their condolences, feeling bad. And the farmer's like, yeah, we'll see. It's too soon to tell. Next thing that happens, the country goes to war. The army comes through, takes all the young men, except who? Yeah, the farmer's son. And then the story ends there. But of course, it never ends there. It's like a movie with the happily ever after. And all, almost all of us who have been through relationships go, yeah, right. <laughs> that is not the end of the story. <laughs> they get together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's only the beginning. Of course, there are happy relationships. Of course, there are so many good things that can come even from those things that we thought were not good at all. And a lot of challenge can come from those things that we thought were the best thing ever. You can look at anybody who wins the lottery, right? What a headache, um, <clears throat> in addition to other things. But <laughs> this is, 
the point being when we start, when we step back far enough to really see how life unfolds, how things come together and fall apart, come together and fall apart. You know, how, well, I like this, but I don't like that. And, and just the ongoing process, we can start to recognize that there's no self in any of it. There's no ownership of any of it. If we really recognize that we don't own this body, we don't own these feelings, this is not who we are, we can be a lot more relaxed about it. It's like, oh, okay. And if our meditation gets stronger and stronger, then we have more insulation between the conditions of our world and the conditions around us and our feeling, our reactions. And that's helpful. Because where we really get caught up is when we feel something based on our sense input that we take personally, and then we react to it in ways that are unskillful and we cause more trouble. That's where it really gets us caught. And we can, we can put a wedge of awareness in almost any step in that, in that process. That kind of puts the brakes on how that unfolds. And most of us can identify certain patterns that we've gone through over and over and over again. And, you know, which ones of those have a good outcome and which ones don't. And then to recognize, hey, anger isn't automatic. It's not just something that has to arise when we feel hurt, threatened, whatever. It's something we can observe and choose to manage. So I was thinking about that story that Ajahn Pasano has told about Ajahn Shah. And it, it actually is mentioned in a light way in stillness flowing in the biography of Ajahn Shah. That apparently after Ajahn Shah had established his monastery and was training monks and nuns, at some point, there was a novice monk who Ajahn Chah saw in the distance picking up the kettle. So they had these big kettles for, at least they did at Wapananachat, I imagine. I imagine it like this. He had this kettle that they would boil water for tea. <clears throat> and this novice had picked it up and was drinking out of the spout. And it just sparked this anger in Ajahn Chah. He was he ran after this novice, Ajahn Pasano said he was going to thrash him. <clears throat> and then he stopped. 
In stillness flowing, it just says that he lost his temper. And he already had attainment clearly at that time, but was not an Arahant. Because that doesn't happen with Arahants. doesn't happen with non-returners either. And then Ajahn Chah went to his kuti and he didn't come out for 10 days. And there's in uh, Stillness Flowing, Ajahn Jayasaro says that, you know, some of Ajahn Chah's students think that possibly was the point where Ajahn Chah really did overcome greed, hatred, and delusion completely. So feeling is so important. We can really break through working with feeling. And I don't really think it's so useful to be too academic about the way the suttas talk about feeling, you know, they talk about pleasant, painful, neutral feeling, emotions in a different category. I don't, I don't know if that's so helpful on a practical level. I mean, it's good to be able to break things down the way the Buddha did, understand what the Buddha was saying, because what he's getting at is just tease this apart. What you're teasing apart is our... <clears throat> Our belief that we are this, that it's some solid, you know, like truth that I am my, my body and my feelings and my thoughts, and my perceptions, and my consciousness. That's what I am. That's not what we are. None of that even really belongs to us. It's just a process unfolding. But when we in that process, very quickly, unpleasant feeling bursts forth in anger and emotion. And I don't find it so helpful to just try to categorize this. It's more like let's use it to understand what we can do to help guide the mind to train ourselves so that we can really be happy and free. So I think I'll stop talking, but I'd love to hear your questions and comments. If you have any. Um, <clears throat> I'm struck by how when I feel something, it, it does feel like that defines me, that I am that thing. And I'm realizing how much I do that with other people. Um, how if they exhibit, they do a certain thing, which I think is perhaps unselfish or, or greedy. Uh, I I then think of them like that defines them. I, I don't see the 
the context of uh, uh, of of where that comes from. I don't see them as a whole person. I see them as a uh, a person who is. I don't even want to get to know them anymore. I feel like oh, because. Uh, and it happened when I was playing the sport and this person kept calling this ball, you know, pickleball, which is like tennis. But I thought one person kept calling my shots out and they were clearly in, I thought. And I just made up my mind that this is an untrustworthy person. This is a person who is too competitive. And I did not even until now begin to think, oh, that's that's just a whole person. <laughs> And I'm seeing it from my perspective. I, I don't know anything really about them. And yet I have defined them. And, and who gets hurt in that? I mean, they don't know I'm doing that. So I completely limit my world and then select people that, that I, I'm just this judge. And uh, how, uh, how, how much suffering comes from that rather than than being able to see like oh i'm judging right now and just noticing that i'm judging and it has and and i don't but but and then not to go into the, oh i'm such a bad person for judging i'm going to stop judging now that i'm judging myself and it's just there's no end to that cycle except to say oh that was judging back to the game back to Thank you, Denny. It's so true. I mean, if we, it's so helpful to stop and think about well, how we're putting people into, you know, tiny boxes. And one of the friends I've had long ago, he's passed away quite a long time ago now, but he said, you know, what if every time you meet someone you know, someone you've met before, and you, you see them afresh? You know, set aside our preconceived ideas about them. Now, of course, there are some limitations to this. I also like Ajahn Chah's teaching about knowing the animals in the forest. <laughs> you know, if, if you've experienced that someone has the has in the past been harsh or dishonest or whatever, you don't really completely shelve that, but give it a chance, right? And, and um, it's so true to, and, and what are these judgments based on? You know, it's, it's how I feel it affects me. So we're so caught up in self at that point. And it's all very understandable. You know, we are conditioned and evolved to survive. And these, you know, judgments and these, you know, ways of, of um, kind of evaluating things in the snap, you know, like what do those studies say about how quickly decisions are made about you? Um, or how we make decisions about people and, you know, the first sentence or two or whatever, I don't know how many seconds or minutes it takes us to make a judgment about someone. This is all about survival. 
And I kind of like the phrase that says, you know, um, evolution wants us to survive, but it doesn't care at all about whether or not we're happy. <laughs> so there's a lot of things involved in, you know, <coughs> survival that don't really make us happy and don't make us enlightened. And once we realize that human consciousness being a sentient being with the potential to awaken carries us to a point where survival isn't what's important. Yeah, it is for the purpose of continuing to practice, but not at that, you know, basic primitive level of just wanting to live long enough, procreate enough to keep the species going or however that <laughs> works, you know, but to actually recognize this amazing potential to be human being. And so in that, to take an interest in other living beings, people, and take an interest in expanding our heart, growing the heart, not closing it down, like you were saying, Denny, who's getting hurt in that interaction, <laughs> in, that, in that reflection, and that's so often true for us. And it doesn't just limit our, our relationship with that one person. It limits our way of interacting in the world, our way of, of feeling, feeling about the world we live in, the feeling we have about ourselves. Any more comments at the moment? Yes, Carol. Okay. I liked um, when you said about that we don't own our feelings um, for two reasons, or that, yeah, that we don't own them or we can't claim them or something. Um, there are two reasons. One, Lee Brasington is always talking about that we are just really a bunch of processes or chemical processes. And then there also, um, I, I struggle with um, sometimes taking things personally. And it's much easier to deal with taking things personally if it's just, this is a chemical process and it doesn't belong to me. <laughs> you know, I, I laugh, but it 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 would ha it helps, you yeah. know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's 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 it. You know, not taking any of this as identity. Mm -hmm. If it's not me, it's not mine, not myself. Yeah, oh. it could lead to such troubles if you take things personally and you react out of it. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you, Carol. Karen? Yeah, I just had a question around that, like feelings aren't ours, which I, I do get. But um, I guess, you know, we grasp them a lot and that's why they feel like ours. Yeah. So I had a bit of a nice insight a few weeks ago because I was feeling kind of like this uh, anger towards somebody or uh, resentment over an issue that had long resolved, right? It's just mm -hmm. coming up. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly realized, you know, that it was, this is kind of the wrong languaging. I know that it, it was me, the ill will, like it's arising, I guess. I'm conditioned to feel it on certain things. And I realized, yeah, no, it's coming from, you know, me. It's not this guy. It's not his fault. Yeah. It's, it's me and my reactive patterns that's causing this to happen. Yeah. I was wondering if you could help me <laughs> dealing with, okay, I've had that realization, but of course, there's still a it's still arising when I think of this mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll feel the feelings in my body. I know the resentments and arising. And I'll say to myself, you know, this is ill will, Karen. This is the ill will in you that you have to work with. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you could give me some tips on working with it. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's harder. It, you get the realization, but it's hard to work with even still. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Before I go into that, I want to say there's nothing wrong with your language around this. Because okay. the Buddha said, we, we have to talk in a, in a way referring to me and, you know, you and, you know, in a conventional level, how do we describe anything? Yeah. <laughs> so he said, there's these two levels. There's the level of conventional um, relating and, um, discuss, you know, talking about things like, and then there's the the spiritual level of recognizing there's no uh, sort of sustainable, everlasting self, solid self. So just so you know, that language is fine. We just have to know how to shift between those two layers. Now, the more important question of how do I work with this thing that keeps coming up in the mind, we can know intellectually um, that that's not wholesome or that, you know, whatever, but how do I work with it? So there are various ways. The one that I think is very powerful is to notice how it feels in our body when we think about that incident or, you know, like, where's the feeling in the body? It takes us away from the story. So what keeps getting repeated in the mind is the story. You know, what happened, what they did, what they said, how unfair it is, you know, whatever, whatever it's there. So when we turn to the feeling that we experience in the body, there might be a tightness somewhere or... Um, even pain might arise, but, you know, like whatever it is, and then paying attention to that. So this like process of feeding your demons, that, that's a, a way of working with feeling in the body related to um, an experience or um, a habit or a pattern or an addiction. 
and there are other ways. So the two books I usually recommend about this are Feeding Your Demons by Lama Sultramalioni or Focusing by Eugene Genlin. And so that gives you some ways of working with that. On the level of this kind of ill will and hatred, there's actually a sutta in the Anguttara on removing resentment. And I think the way it goes is you, you try to look at this situation in the light of metta, loving kindness. Like, can I really see this whole person? Here again, we're in conventional way of speaking, but can I look at more aspects of this person and their situation? Can I imagine myself saying or doing something like that and why I might, it might happen? Because we need that kind of kindness towards ourselves as well, because we... I don't know about you, but I know I do things that I don't like that I've done or say things that I would rather I hadn't said. And we can look back on that and beat ourselves up sometimes. And yet, if we're more, more open, we can see the context within which that happened and we can understand it better. And context can stretch back over lifetimes if we had that perception, if we had that ability to see where this pattern of whatever we want to call it, karmic stream energy, whatever this process is that I'm identifying as me, where that's been, then I would be completely understanding of why I had that reaction. It all comes from something in the past. It's conditioned. It's based on conditions. If we can look at what someone else said or did, what we say or do in the context of the conditions that could form that, we can have a lot more kindness and compassion around it. So in this little sutta, there are five, it's in the book of fives in the Anguttara Nikaya on removing resentment. And the first thing I think is we look at the situation with kindness, with loving kindness, metta. And the second one is we look upon it with compassion you know, feeling how someone must be suffering to say or do something that's cruel or um, harsh. And we can have that compassion for ourselves too. And then we can try to set the whole thing aside and just not think about it. And I think that's what's in there. I'm trying to do this from memory, but I may have it wrong. So you all get to look up resentment in the Anguttara Nikaya and find out what it really says. But it's like, there's, there's this, you know, kind of like just seeing if you can drop it. Um, I know that the last one is equanimity where you recognize this person um, is creating karma. And that, that comes back to them. It's like, we don't have to set them straight or, you know, <laughs> there was one woman who came to a teaching I was giving and she said that she likes to 
kind of get back at people because she's making sure they get their karma. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) No, my friend, you're making karma. This is not good. (laughs) That gets taken care of on a whole different level. (laughs) And so um, recognizing that this person is um, making even more trouble for themselves and, um, and, and have some equanimity around that. And there's one of those things that I skipped, but you can check it out and, um, and see what the Buddha said. It's a very short sutta, just like boom, 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 five things. And so we can, we can take those ideas and really see how that applies to the particular situation we have. And knowing that when we have resentment or anger, or ill will, there's something underneath it where we are feeling threatened or we're identifying and attaching to something that really isn't worthy of our attachment. So the Buddha said, when we get to the point where we know that there is nothing in this world worth clinging to, well, I think we're pretty darn close to awakening at that point. (laughs) But to really remind ourselves of that, whenever we're suffering, we're clinging to something. We want something to be different than it is. And what is that and why? Why? So I hope that's useful, Karen. Yes, it, it is. I'll look up that suda. And uh, one of the things I, I feel like I need to learn is just to be patient because, you know, when you have these insights, you're like, okay, well, you know, this should be going soon, but it doesn't. Like, I mean, I oh, you know, many yes. lifetimes to develop and it doesn't, it's not going to go away overnight, you know, so I gotta true. keep reminding myself that. But sometimes, you know, I can really feel that deep conditioning that it just goes like mm-hmm. I can even look at my life and say, now this habit pattern didn't develop in this lifetime. I've been nurturing it, but <laughs> it could have happened like I don't know, millennia ago, you know. So I can feel that sometimes. Anyways, thanks. That's very helpful. Yeah, thank you for your reflections. It's so true. If I mean, it's just, it's wonderful when we get to the point where we even stop and notice how we're feeling and that we have, we can do something about it. And, you know, you're right. These things don't go away just because we know they should. (laughs) And that's why I think the Buddha said patient endurance is the highest austerity. You know, we have to like, yeah, here it is again. Number 83. Okay. (laughs) But when we can laugh at it, that helps a lot. Because, you know, we know it's a thing and it's not my thing. It's just a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Just, you know, thanks so much for having these Saturday sessions because I find them, you know, very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Holly?
I was having an experience with the second arrow a couple of nights ago, which to me seems like on topic. So I, I spent uh, five days this week with COVID. So I was in bed with either a screaming headache, a really sore throat, or uh, extreme fatigue. <laughs> or all. Anyway, so sometimes I would um, have a moment of mindfulness, and one of the things I've been doing is saying, well, this is unpleasant. What if it could be just a little bit, just a little bit less unpleasant? What if I could raise the joy factor <laughs> just a little bit? And when I did that, I was able to do that, and what sloughed off was the second arrow. Mm. So instead of going, uh, uh, I have this screaming headache. Um, when is it going? When is it going to end? Is it ever going to end? Is it going to get worse? Uh, yeah. Why won't it go away? I, I just went. Oh, yeah, screaming headache, and just let go of all the story around it. And then I was much more, I won't say peaceful. Yeah, there was an element of peacefulness to it. Of course, I had to do it over and over again, but I can do that now. I could say, what if I just had a smidgen more peace? And then what usually falls away is the feelings around the situation. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So true. So for anyone who doesn't know about the second arrow, it's a sutta. Um, where the Buddha describes getting shot with an arrow and then, you know, adding a whole bunch of other stuff on top of it mentally, emotionally, and that's the second arrow. So it's another one you can look up. <laughs> if you Google these things now, Googling, you can, you can type that into a Google and you'll most likely find the sutta. It's amazing. Um, that was not true a couple of years ago. So, yeah, so this is a really good example. And thank you for sharing that because I haven't gotten COVID yet, at least as far as I know, um, but I'm sure it will happen. We all will get it eventually. And uh, we can remember Holly and with her raging headache and her terrible sore throat up there in the, in the forest and, and remember, yeah, okay. I just, <laughs> um, look at the moments when it's not raging uh, or, you know, <clears throat> I liked that reflection of what if we're just a little, a little more peaceful, a little more relief. I think this is a lot what, happens for people when they do the mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Um, you know, John Kabat-Zinn developed that use of mindfulness in a secular sense uh, to work with every, every different kind of ailment. And um, did a great job of documenting what people were experiencing before and after you know, engaging in this, in this training, you might say. 
And a lot of what people report is that they, their, their level of pain and discomfort greases, but it's not really because anything's changed with their, their situation. It's because of their ability to have mindfulness around the fact that it's not continuous or that it's, um, you know, there are things they can do in the moment with their, dis- with their discomfort and their pain that they didn't know they could do before, like, you know, relaxing and, and um, practicing awareness of the body. And this is a lot like what you're saying. So a lot what falls away is that, oh my God, what if this doesn't change? What if I am um, never going to be able to walk anymore? You know, I've been having trouble with one of my hips and it's like, if I sit too long on the floor, then I have trouble walking. And it's like, if I go into something like, oh no, I'm old, <laughs> this is only going to get worse <laughs> or something like that. Or when's it going to end or, you know, all that stuff, then it's just so, so much worse to do that. And so um, I think that's, that's really what, you know, what we can use mindfulness and wisdom to help us work with whatever we're experiencing. The feeling, again, feeling. How do we, how do we deal with it? Of course, I have my private nurse. <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> In case you don't know, Aya Chitananda was a nurse before she became a nun. Um, so it's nice to get kind of immediate medical advice. <laughs> anyway, anyone else? We should do some meditation before we end. So... Find a comfortable position. It doesn't really matter if you're sitting, standing, or lying down. It'd be a little bit hard to be walking right now and listening to my voice, but I suppose that's also possible given the technology we have available these days. Well, the posture isn't what's so important. It's whether or not our spine is straight and that we can relax and let go of whatever tension we feel in the body. Or at least to the degree with that we can. <clears throat> And so we can, with our attention, putting our attention first, perhaps at the top of the head, feeling the top of the head and around the eyes, the face, the jaw, noticing any discomfort or tightness. And sometimes noticing it and giving the 
of invitation for it to relax. It really can cause the muscles to soften. Our attention slowly moves down our body, our neck and our shoulders, and letting them relax and feeling, just tuning into this part of the body and our arms and our hands, noticing if they're uncomfortable at all, maybe shifting a little bit placing them a bit differently. Letting the attention come down from the shoulders, over the chest and back, relaxing down over the abdomen and the low back. Just checking if the body is comfortable enough, balanced in its position so that it can be at ease and not working hard to hold the body up, but also not slouching and Losing mindfulness, we want to stay alert and present. Feeling the hips and the legs, the seat, the buttocks. Does it feel comfortable? We need to adjust a little bit. Can we let any stress or discomfort flow out of the body? Sometimes I imagine breathing in and that in-breath coming in and gradually feeling filling and filling all the way to the edges of the body, down to the fingertips and the toes. In the out-breath, taking the out-breath as an opportunity to relax. Relax and feel. can be helpful to smile. The statues at Ajahn Ganha's Monastery of the Buddha, smile. And just gently bringing a sense of well-being and happiness to the body and mind.
knowing that we can do this many times a day, just maybe for a few minutes. Just feel our way through the body, noticing any tightness or pressure. Inviting it to relax and let go and smile. There's still tension in the body or the mind. We can take a few deeper breaths. And then on each exhalation, let go a bit more. Consider that we may be able to be happy and at ease in the present moment, regardless of what's happening. That our mind is actually different from the body. Even if the body is in pain, the body is unwell, we can be aware of those feelings and the mind can be happy and at ease. or maybe just a little bit more at ease than before. After all, this body is not me, it's not mine. There's no self in the body or in feeling the body, the feeling does not belong to me. I am not in the feeling or in the body. It's just process. An unfolding that goes up and down, around and around. And I can step back and observe. And even smile. Have compassion, be kind. 
and for feeling that comes from mental activity, from the experience coming through the senses of sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. We can feel that in the body. We can watch it change. Stay present with it until it fades away. And the same with the arising of lust, the arising of anger, the arising of fear. We can be present, observe how it feels in the body, watch it fade away. Sometimes it can take a long time, but we can be patient and present and not stoke it with any kind of thought about it, about the story, not cling to the feeling, but let it change, morph, become more diffuse, fade away all on its own. We don't have to be driven by feeling. We don't have to grasp on to the pleasant and push away from the pain. You can relax around it, step back, observe it, notice that it's not self. That it moves and changes, never staying quite the same. When a man came to Ajahn Shah with very difficult time with anger, he said, I'm just so angry. Ajahn Shah says, see how long you can stay angry. Just stay angry. He quickly learned that anger was not him. It does not define him. It's just phenomenon. Passing. And learn the triggers, develop skill in managing them. Step back, observe, feel. How does it feel? So we can come back to the body and feel how the body feels. Tightness returns to some place in the body and we relax it again and again and again. It's really an invitation, it's a presence 
when we pay attention to something, sometimes it grows, sometimes it decreases. Another working hypothesis that when we pay attention to the, the good feelings, they grow. When we pay attention to the negative feelings, they decrease. There's pleasant feeling in the body, some tingling and warmth, a spiritual pleasant feeling. And we pay attention to it, it grows, it can spread through the body, bring more happiness and peace. If we're dealing with a painful feeling, a painful mental feeling, you know, perhaps a, a pain in the stomach or a tightness in the throat coming from fear or anger. When we pay attention to it, we bring some kindness to it. Mm, that's the key, isn't it? If we bring kindness to it instead of more fear and anger, it decreases. Kindness, compassion, equanimity. And it's all based on mindfulness. We have to be present and aware to do any of this. We build up our capacity to stay present without clinging. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.